I'm Dr. Derek Cohen, and this is the Foundation Podcast. All right. Welcome to this week's episode of the Foundation Podcast. No, I am not Dr. Derek Cohen. Um, I am Crystal Bonham, the Digital Communications Director here at the Foundation, and we're turning the tables a little bit today. Derek, uh, our colleague Rob, Rod Bordelon, and David Blot are going to be joining us behind the mics today. We're going to talk all things budget and some of Speaker Phelan's packages that he's been putting forward. So, with that, let's jump right in. Rod, you are all things budget and numbers and economics. So why don't you just go ahead and share with us? It's budget week. What does that mean? What have we seen so far? Well, it was a great week uh, for the budget. We got the uh, House to finally pass the appropriations bill uh, late yesterday. Um, and it, it the reason it was a terrific budget is because um, while it's a large budget, nearly a quarter of a trillion dollars, it comes within the threshold that we put out here at the Policy Foundation of the what we refer to as the conservative Texas budget, um, meaning that the increase in the budget does not exceed the ability of taxpayers to, to fund it, which is measured by population growth and inflation. Uh, and we've calculated that from the beginning of this process, well before the session started. Um, our uh, chief economist here uh, at the foundation, Dr. Yen, uh, calculated that number to be $246.8 billion. And the House last night unanimously approved a budget that expends $6 billion below that number at just over $240 billion. And that I said unanimous uh, vote because that's, that's important. Every single member of the House voted in favor of that bill, Republicans and Democrats, even though many of them were attempting to amend the, the bill as it went through the process. It got unanimous support and it is well within the conservative Texas budget threshold. So that's good news. Great. Awesome. So speaking of amendments, there were 240 filed from what I've heard. And to me, that sounds like a big number, but I supposedly that's not as many as we've seen in, in sessions past. What kind of things did we see? Were there any notable amendments that either passed or failed that we should talk about. Today. Oh, yeah, there were quite a few. Um, it started off a little slow. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the number was a little bit lower than uh, than previous sessions. And by the way, um, the House has rules where they require members to pre-file their amendments so they have an opportunity to, to digest them before they get onto the floor. So we had seen these amendments uh, since Monday of, uh, of this week. Um, and there were 240. That's a, a low number compared to the last few sessions. The vast majority of those, however, were um, were either withdrawn uh, or failed to pass or put in what's referred to as Article 11, which is really just sort of another uh, trash heap for uh, for some of these amendments, meaning they'll have no effect. They put them in the in the bill as sort of a contingency if if some other uh, opportunity arose where they would. Uh, appropriate those funds. So those those were not appropriated. Uh, a few notable ones, um, there was an amendment to try to expand Medicaid. Uh, I think uh, David will get into that here in a minute. Um, that thankfully failed to pass, even though it was uh, close on that. Um, we also had a few others that, uh, that were notable. Um, Representative Howard um, had an amendment which was accepted and adopted, which, which was pretty, uh, pretty significant because there's been a lot of debate this session about um, about the pandemic and the effect on the authority of the governor versus the legislature. And of course, the Constitution 
uh, dictates that the legislature is the one that actually appropriates uh, funds. Uh, however, during times of emergency, uh, when the legislature is not in session, the governor is empowered to expend funds and appropriate those funds as necessary to combat those emergencies. Um, this amendment wouldn't necessarily directly impact the governor's authority in that way, but it would uh, require that that the House and the Senate in the interim come back and meet and hold public hearings and pre-authorize whatever the governor is, uh, is saying to do. That may not make it through the final bill, but it did get passed on, on uh, the bill yesterday as an amendment. And even more importantly, yesterday, there was an amendment by Representative Morrison that took a step beyond and said no funds uh, would ever be appropriated during an amendment, I mean, during a, an interim um, without the uh, legislature being called back in. So the legislature would have to be either in regular session or special session for any funds to be appropriated. That would be a significant change. And, uh, and that was adopted by, uh, by unanimous vote as well, 147 to nothing. Fascinating. What about uh, in terms of the budget, were there any things that passed that would change that final number you know, you said we're six billion under the foundation's proposed conservative Texas budget. Are there any amendments that passed that would threaten that final number of the budget, you know, coming within range of that cap that we've set? Um, well, I mentioned the the, uh, the Medicaid expansion, which which failed. So that's the good news. That would have been potential uh, a potential huge increase in the budget, which would have likely blown the conservative Texas budget. So we're thankful for that uh, not passing. Um, but we also had a number of uh, amendments that really kind of get to procedural issues. Um, uh, Representative Davis had one with respect to uh, taxpayer-funded lobbying um, that, uh, that uh, did pass, um, that actually uh, repeals a prohibition on certain types of taxpayer-funded lobbying by, uh, by education service centers. Uh, and Representative Biederman had one that affects the, uh, the ways in which individual state agencies identify their, their budget uh, appropriations in the future. Um, uh, but more importantly, to your point, from now going into the next uh, uh, legislative cycle, the legislature also last night passed House Bill 2, which is not an amendment to Senate Bill 1, but House Bill 2, which is a supplemental budget, which authorized the, uh, an expenditure of funds. Um, but it was actually in this session ended up being a reduction in funds. So we had what we refer to as a deappropriation of almost seven and a half billion dollars. Um, and, uh, and that was actually the first time I've ever seen that as in a supplemental budget. So that's actually good news as well. Rod, I've got a quick question for sure. you. This is David. You know, you talked about how expanding Medicaid would have just, uh, would have been a huge expense to the budget. Yet what we've heard from Representative uh, Coleman in, in the press conference, along with uh, a number of other colleagues there, as they said that well, this was going to be a net uh, positive uh, gain to the state of Texas, that we would uh, benefit financially from expanding Medicaid. What, what, what do you have to say to that? Well, I think what Representative Coleman was referring to is the fact that it would, uh, assuming we, the state of Texas were to expand Medicaid, uh, and he was referring, he was referencing some other form of expansion. He didn't want to call it expanding Medicaid, but in, in effect, it's expanding Medicaid, however you cut it. Um, Texas would then be um, eligible for additional federal funds, and I think that's probably what he was referring to. But those federal funds come with strings attached, so the state would still uh, encumber uh, funds and and be on the hook for additional expansions of funds in the future. 
Uh, and frankly, we could see what happens with some of those federal strings being tugged in, in different directions because recently the, um, uh, the Biden administration revoked a waiver uh, here in Texas, the 1115 waiver, uh, which uh, will still kind of go through the process a little bit. But, but that, uh, those are the, the examples of how the feds, uh, you know, they'll, they'll submit funds down to the various states, but they come with strings. You have to, you have to operate according to the guidelines that the feds uh, uh, direct you to. I think it's also important to note that the studies they were using to make that claim was used by many other states that did expand and it never really um, didn't shake out for that. It didn't shake out. It didn't work out the way that, that the studies were, were used to sell that program. And so um, I, I think it's, 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 it'll be good for Texas. It's not going to cost and, and blow our budget, which is what is happening in those other states. And because of the increased cost in, in healthcare and in their Medicaid program, they're having to cut from other programs that are important to, to their state citizens. So how about, David, how about you actually walk us through what was proposed and what happened? Well, you know, it was interesting because uh, the budget amendment uh, uh, was was for Thursday. What happened on Wednesday that that really um, ginned a lot of excitement was uh, uh, there were two additional Republicans that joined with uh, the Democrats and the seven other Republicans that were uh, joint author and co-sponsoring. Uh, Representative Julie Johnson's bill to expand Medicaid. Now, what was going to happen in the budget uh, amendment was not going to expand Medicaid. It was basically going to have an amendment to fund uh, our portion of, of Medicaid expansion. Our the state of Texas, the state of Texas, yes. And so, it, it was go- it was it was the beginning of uh, a, a, a political effort to. Um, pressure to get that bill through into to have a hearing in committee and then to have a vote which it's not likely to have one at all so um, it was a tactic that that was used and uh, didn't pan out and uh, we'll see what uh, what becomes of, of that bill and what happens here in Texas but frankly and, and I'm happy to talk about it here shortly you know we have we have real solutions that will what will address the uh, the root causes in, in healthcare, the, the high cost of care, um, getting coverage at affordable rates, and it'll it'll impact four to six million Texans, not just the one to one point five million that would uh, get covered under under Medicaid expansion. So I'm, I'm I'm thankful because we get to focus on doing some good things that will help more people for less money. Right, and at the end of the day, I think the heart of the issue really is trying to find solutions to these complicated healthcare policy questions that we've had for ever, right? And so this is a great opportunity. Let's just jump in and talk about Speaker Phelan last week, last week? Ish, two weeks ago, two weeks ago uh, put out his package of bills that mm-hmm. they're calling Healthy Families, Healthy Texas. We briefly talked about it on the podcast before. And a lot of those bills are priorities that Right on Healthcare has as part of Texas Public Policy Foundation. So what are we seeing? Some of those have passed unanimously. Mm-hmm. Some of those have done really well. Some of them are, are still awaiting a vote. But how would Healthy Families, Healthy Texas serve to provide solutions to the issues that we have uh, with healthcare across the state and really be a model to reject the idea of expanding an already broken system? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to, when, when we reference that, that package, it's bipartisan. Right. Almost half of the bills were sponsored by Democrats. 
So this isn't a conservative or a Republican solution. It is a bipartisan solution that will that will help the people of Texas. And that's the way it should be. We should be working side by side to to improve access, decrease cost and, and make healthcare care uh, function uh, in a market based way, because, you know, that's 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 the only way that we're going to be able to have some sanity. Uh, currently, uh, we have a, a system that just doesn't work. Uh, but, you know, the, the package is, is we're looking at decreasing the cost of medicine. We're looking at alternative forms of coverage. We're looking at transparency, getting to see the prices. Who knew that was a good idea? Everyone. Um, the, the maternal program. And, you know, there, we as a foundation are supporting some of, of those Democrat bills. Why? Because uh, they fix Medicaid. We've said, let's not expand Medicaid. Let's fix it. So these are some good bills that really address some issues that are that are um, uh, uh, that are small fixes that will have a big impact. It'll it'll be a good return on the investment. So um, it, it's something that we can get behind. Are there any of the package bills that are facing a lot of opposition at the moment? Uh, absolutely, uh, there are three uh, in particular. Uh, they're, they're the alternative forms of coverage. Uh, so the association health plans, which we've seen a lot of success uh, over the last few years because that was part of the Trump administration's efforts. Association health plans was one of their solutions. And so uh, lots of people implemented that, that, that model and uh, it was a fantastic success. But now that it's locked up in litigation, it's come to a screeching halt. So we want to do what we can at the state level to free those, those groups up so that they can uh, – purchase health uh, benefits like bigger companies. So what is an alternative health coverage? Can you give a good sure. example of mm-hmm. something that we might you know, know of off the top of our heads? And what kind of Texans would an alternative health coverage program cover or benefit? Well, all Texans, but you know, it's not for everybody. It's, we don't believe in one size fits all solutions. So the best way to approach it is Let's have as many options and, and models and 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 uh, you know, choices as possible, so that people can choose what's best for them and their family. Healthcare is local. Healthcare is hyper local, and depending on what part of Texas you're in, depending on uh, culturally your background and, and your genetics, some things may work, some may not. Um, you know, an ACA plan, a Christian sharing ministry, a, a Blue Cross plan, your employer's plan. Medicaid, Medicare um, could be uh, in one of these <clears throat> options is, you know, I mentioned an association health plan, um, a plan through the Farm Bureau, uh, which the Farm Bureau bill is, is, is it's, it's unique. It's exciting because it, it's, it's not uh, the, the benefit that, that we're looking to offer through the state is it will not be regulated by the Department of Insurance. What does that mean? That means it, it's not viewed as insurance by the federal government. If it's not viewed as insurance by the federal government, it does not have to uh, maintain the, the, the requirements uh, under the ACA. Is so there they a have quality the, control issue there? Well, and that's, and that's the, the opposition's um, complaint is that, well, there are no patient protections. Well, sure there are. And, and, and actually, the, the authors are looking to strengthen those patient protections uh, when it gets to the floor. So I look forward to that discussion and what they have to say. You know, I, as you know, I, I currently use a, a cost-sharing model, and uh, I've, I've uh, recommended it to a, a number of my friends and, and colleagues, and they're they're nothing but happy with it. 
So it's offering the service that they need at a rate that they're happy with. And it'll, there are no networks. So they can go to any doctor or any hospital that they want. Looking at Obamacare, it's just an example. You can't go. If, if, let's just say uh, if, if somebody were to get a, a diagnosis of cancer, you, you couldn't go to MD Anderson. You couldn't go to Sloan Kettering. You couldn't go to Mayo Clinic because they don't take the Obamacare plans. But if you're using one of these other plans, there are no networks. You can go where you want. So there's real freedom there. And that's peace of mind that people really want when it comes to their health care. They also want to be in charge because I, I, I'd be surprised if you live in Texas and if you had a, a diagnosis like that, that you didn't want to go to MD Anderson. What's the most surprising thing or surprising win so far with the health care package? All right. So I guess the most surprising thing is the fact that there has been a sense of unity amongst um, people on the right and and some on the left that are, are, are messaging in such a way that, um, you know, they're pushing these bills through. They understand that uh, we need to focus on costs. It's not just we need to give everybody insurance. You know, giving everybody an insurance card to put in their wallet is not the solution. It doesn't guarantee access. It doesn't guarantee the fact that you're not going to go bankrupt because most medical bankruptcies are for those that have insurance. So we have some real issues to address. And uh, Speaker, F- Speaker Phelan's package does a great job of starting the pathway of, of addressing those, those problems. Uh, I want to circle back to you, Rod, and just kind of tie in this, the healthcare package. You had an op-ed recently on some of the regulations that went away during COVID or were paused during COVID by the governor. Some of those were related to healthcare. I'd love to hear your perspective on how those things are moving in the legislature, if at all, and what we're seeing there. Yeah, sure. Um, the well, some of the ones on on healthcare, as you say, particularly telehealth and telemedicine, uh, tend to be moving more than some of the others. But there are a number of bills out there that are addressing the actual regulations that were suspended. So, backing up to expand on what you were saying, during the uh, COVID um, emergency order that the governor had signed, uh, and well before the legislature came back into town in special in a regular session. The governor suspended, uh, as a result of his uh, emergency orders, he suspended a number of regulations that, um, that in his view, were either going to be impeding the ability of the state to deal with the pandemic or impeding the, uh, the economic recovery that was necessary to pay for the pandemic. And so there were a number of those regulations that were suspended. They remain suspended, um, even though some of the emergency orders have now been um, either withdrawn or, or, or softened. So we've reopened the economy, we're moving on, uh, but we still recognize, and I think the governor still recognizes that many of those regulations, frankly, were, were not necessary. Um, and if they weren't necessary during the pandemic, um, they may not be necessary as we come out of the pandemic. And so there are a number of bills in the legislature, telehealth, telemedicine, particularly I mentioned, there's a few bills on those that are moving um, and essentially just going to be sort of expanding and directing either insurance companies to to recognize and pay for those services as telehealth because some insurance companies were reluctant to do so, um, or just taking away some of the regulations that, as I said, impeded the expansion use of telemedicine, telehealth. Uh, the doctors that perform and the 
whatever medical provider that is performing that medical care via telemedicine, uh, via the technology of telehealth, would still be regulated through their licensing bureau. So they, the standard of care would still be there. The protections are all still in place. This would simply suggest that if the doctor in that particular instance felt that they were able to uh, provide whatever diagnosis or, or care or assistance to their patients through the technology of telemedicine, that they would be allowed to do so. And so that's, that's a certainly a good one. And there, there are a number of others dealing with, um, uh, you know, a number of regulations across the, the spectrum, but, but those are certainly uh, uh, at the forefront. That's great. And I think, uh, you know, after all we've been through in the last year, it's been really unique and interesting to see how some of those regulations that were paused, namely telemedicine, have influenced the speaker's healthcare package. And those are, you know, really going to make a difference in the lives of every Texan. So on that note, we'll pivot to the next package of bills. Mr. Derek Cohen, why don't you take it away and tell us the top lines of Smarter Justice, Safer Texas. Well, to be honest with you, the top line's right there in the title. The Safer Texas is what everyone has to look forward to if if many, most, or all of these bills uh, come to fruition. I think that we see, I, I think that we see when we look at this package that we have a systemic approach. And when I say systemic, what I mean is the criminal justice system is exactly that. It's a system. It is a sequential series of decisions and events that must happen in order to achieve justice at the end. And in order to do so, you need to make sure you're addressing each different discrete point appropriately. And I think this is what a, this is one of the best examples of a package of bills that, that does exactly that. Just starting at the top, uh, with HB 20 from Representative Murr and HJR 4 from Representative Kyle Cassell. This is the bail reform. So y'all remember when Governor Abbott said that he was the making top priority. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the five top priorities. Well, which then became six. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> nobody knew the uh, the storm was coming. Um, but these are these are the top. Or this is one of the top priorities simply because we have case after case after case of the bail system as currently construed, failing to adequately diagnose risk. And when I say risk, I don't necessarily mean risk of reoffense, though that's obviously a very big component of that, but risk of just simply not showing up. You know, you can't have that justice at the end if you're not having those interim steps because somebody doesn't show up for their court date. And so we have two different ways magistration or the setting of bail can go wrong. We can underdiagnose risk and say, okay, this individual will be set at uh, $10,000 with a bondsman. They can get out for $1,000. And that person's a danger to society and then reoffends or never shows up. We can underdiagnose risk. Um, I'm sorry, we can overdiagnose risk where we say, okay, this person's here on a low level drug offense, but roots to the community. You know, we know the person's grandmother, so on and so forth. I'll just set it around $500. Well, there's some people that can't even scratch together that much money. And even though this person pronounces or poses no risk at all to society, there's no mechanism for letting that low level offender out. Now, the problem is we're trying to do all of this within the four corners of essentially an arresting document. So we say we arrested this guy for whatever what the higher level offense was. We arrested this guy for whatever the lower offense was. And the magistrate, the judge setting the bail, has to take that information and guess where that right amount is. And simply put, you know, 
gut sense doesn't work in this case. You know, Rod has a lot of experience in insurance. Uh, you know that if we just guessed insurance rates uh, by looking at somebody uh, on the cover, you know, we would not be having a functional insurance market. And so that's one of the problems that we have. So what these bills do is it sends to attack that a- informational asymmetry by making sure we get actuarially um, correct assessments of risk. And it also it also protects against low p- or high risk people for getting out on low bound amounts like we see happening down in Harris County. And we also see different paths for individuals if they are going to be detained or given high bail, how they can actually go about that procedurally and correcting the situation. The restoring public trust, a lot of that is policing related. Uh, Number one is HB8 by Leo Pacheco. This simply mandates, and you'd figure we'd already do this, but we don't. It mandates that we have an electronic HR record for law enforcement. So what we see is when folks move departments, some places don't actually have anything other than a dust jacket copy of an employment record. Wow. You'd think for something important like that, you'd have something a little more, a little more fleshed out. One of my favorite, uh, HB 830 by Sophronia Thompson, that's the Sandra Bland bill. And, you know, that's obviously something we've worked on here in the past. Uh, they reduced it some, but it is something that still provides uh, a good deal of, I, I would say, uh, that restoration of trust that this particular uh, group is going for. Uh, a big one, one of my personal favorites, um, is HB 1441 by Representative Schaefer. This is the first civil asset forfeiture bill that we had on the floor of the House in over a decade. And that being said, I think that the members were really receptive to what it was looking to do, which is literally protecting innocent owners from the predations of civ- the civil asset forfeiture practice and raising the standard to do it. So it doesn't get rid of the practice, doesn't change the underlying dubious constitutionality, but what it protects is those innocent owners. And we saw it resoundingly voted off the floor 143 to five. And so these are just a couple of examples. The one more I'd like to add is just HB 569, the Botton Farms Bill. We see a lot of folks returning from uh, incarceration with a lot of justice system debt, you know, whether it's fines, fees, court costs, you know, these things can add up depending on what the offense is, how it was charged, so on and so forth. The problem is when you have somebody that's incarcerated in a jail, state jail, or prison, not a lot of economic opportunity by which to earn money to satisfy those debts off. Exactly. And then it becomes an item of collections once that individual is on the outside. Now, this individual also has other headwinds, uh, such as trying to get a job. job. Yeah. And and if they have that job, it's probably going to be uh, getting that foot on on the ladder job. That won't necessarily satisfy that in addition to... Uh, restitution, which this bill does not address, in addition to any sort of child support, in addition to any sort of other obligations that this individual may have. So this is something that allows for the fines and the fees component to get layout credit while the individual is incarcerated, just to ensure that there's a little less headwind for this person when they're reentering. We saw that uh, we saw that go through uh, resoundingly, and I think that it's going to uh, basically meet the same amount of success in the Senate. That's great. So I think it's safe to say that those bills move the needle on right on crimes, conservative criminal justice reform agenda. Absolutely. And now there's definitely ones in this package that we had not had the opportunity to engage on. But I have to just say that this package is not the defunding the police style criminal justice reform. This is not the let's burn the system down criminal justice reform. This is not the the system is inherently broken and irredeemable criminal justice reform. It's none of that. It's 
nope, there's a there's an oversight here. There's an oversight there. There's an opportunity to improve here. There's an opportunity to improve there. And it goes like a scalpel and it hits those various things. And just like David said, in tandem, these are all going to add up to quite, quite uh, the effect. What is it missing? What is it missing? Wow, you're giving me giving me the magic wand. I, I was about to say, the only thing that I could think to add to this package uh, would be an overcriminalization element. So Representative Krauss had a fantastic bill, or still has a fantastic bill that was voted out of the House, I should say, but has a fantastic bill about overcriminalization. Now, when we think of overcriminalization, you know, we all remember when we were kids reading those books, like, you know, in Wyoming, it's illegal to look at a duck from a plane or, you know, things like that. You know, or we can just actually read the federal code, which all those laws are, you know, mostly ridiculous uh, on, on their face. But we do have a lot of laws that exist to either protect a very certain special interest. And I don't mean special interest as a, as a self-interested group, but I just mean a niche area. Like, for example, it is illegal, you know, it is a felony level offense to slander a, a credit union. Well, we have laws against slander, laws against libel. We have all those in the code right now, and they exist where they should, and that's in the penal code. However, we have things in the banking code, in the education code, in, um, you know, obviously the transportation code. We have these penal offenses scattered all about the uh, all about the Texas laws that we don't actually even have that much adequate. Uh, accounting of, you know, TDCAA estimates that there's around 250 such laws, that bill would have addressed some of them. Other ones, it would move into the penal code where they belong. So, you know, giving me the magic wand and saying, you know, if you could go from perfect to perfecter, what would you do with this package? That's probably what I'd do. But I also understand uh, from a explaining the issue perspective, when you start talking about regulatory offenses and things like that, people's eyes glaze over. Even Rod's are just looking at me right now. So, <laughs> so believe me, I, I understand why, uh, you know, some good stuff was let on the cutting room floor, but the final product is just fantastic. What's the over under on the entire package being seen through to the very end of session? Well, the entire package, I think, is going to have some uh, headwinds in the Senate and not because they're not open to these particular reforms, but just because, you know, a lot of these areas cover a broad gamut that doesn't necessarily have an analogous bill or analogous effort over in the Senate. One of the ones that um, that I do that I had not talked about yet is uh, Jeff Leach's uh, HB 1340, and that deals with the law of parties. And I know that especially of people of deep and abiding faith, this is something that's been one of their number one issues. Because what we see is, you know, when you have a capital murder case in which somebody, obviously there is a victim, there is a murder, the weight for the murder can apply to anybody associated with that case. And, all, and sometimes you will see these just incredibly inverted stories of the actual gunman walking, you know, getting a plea deal and walking, uh, you know, sometime down the road, while as the getaway driver then goes to trial and then might actually be saddled with the murder itself. So it actually has to do with the accountability of the justice system in that case. That being said, I know there's a, a companion in the Senate. I just don't know what the, the prospect for that is. I think it looks pretty good. I, uh, I, ho I hope it does well. Um, but I do think that getting all of it through would be a tough ask. I think getting most of it through, I think, is uh, if I were a betting man, I, uh, I would consider that. All right. Well, we are, you know, 30 some odd days out from signing die. We're more than halfway through session in a 
pandemic year where things have looked a little weird. I'd love to just finish with each of y'all's thoughts, maybe a misconception you had going into a session this year that turned out to be different or just kind of a takeaway observation so far for how this pandemic year session has gone. Well, I'll start since I started at the beginning. The The budget, and we'll end with the budget uh, from my perspective, um, at the end of the day, in this case, at the end of the session, um, we will end up with a conservative Texas budget. As I explained earlier at the, the beginning, that means population and growth and inflation will continue to constrain the growth of the budget. That was not at all a given when we started this session. When we were in the pandemic and with the government uh, ordered shutdowns as a result of the pandemic and huge loss in uh, in revenue to the state and economic uh, growth, um, the budget was looking like it was going to be a significant challenge. And I'm not I'm not taking anything away from the budget writers. They had a lot of work to do and they're to be commended. Um, but ultimately, they they ended up in the right place. We ended up with uh, with better growth uh, after coming out of the pandemic, which we started up. Uh, the gov- the uh, comptroller's uh, estimates uh, improved. Uh, obviously, there were some federal funds coming in to deal with some of these issues as well. Um, but o- overall, at the end of the session, we will end up with a, a significantly lower uh, package of spending than uh, than what, what what we had anticipated was uh, was going to be looked at, or there was going to be uh, a lot more fight about uh, what to do about uh, covering that uh, that gap, and and of course some on the left would have been pushing for tax increases, and that would have been problematic and constraining the economy even further. Um, others would have been looking for significant uh, cuts. We were looking at significant cuts. Um, as at, at the end of this session, we will end up with some cuts to the budget, five uh, percent budget cuts across the the spectrum for many of these state agencies, as well as increased revenue and and uh, and frankly a streamlined process of how to deal with that. Um, and I, I think we end up with a pretty good product. And, and as I said, that that's probably the most surprising. Not that not that I'm surprised we ended up with a product, but that that it uh, we got to where we are the way we did. Well, it is technically one of the only things the legislature has to do. It is constitutionally <laughs> about the only thing they have to do, correct? Other than swear themselves in when they when they show <laughs> right, up, right. doesn't mean they have to do it right, though. <laughs> That's right, David. What do you think? You know, we expected the the fight on on Medicaid expansion and and these these um, uh, ideological solutions that are based in in political affiliation, but I, I'm, I'm really pleased to see that there is bipartisan work to really uh, have real solutions in healthcare. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see that um, people are starting to stand shoulder to shoulder on in areas where they can and work together uh, and do that for, for their communities and for the people of the state. That's, that's been um, not only surprising, but encouraging. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, we've had movement on criminal justice reform and to see that continue, obviously, is something that I, you know, am very, very happy to see. But I want to actually I would actually say the most surprising thing is, is the members themselves. You know, going in, you'd figure there'd be some shirking away from duty. And when I say shirking, I don't mean that as a loaded judgment. I mean that as, you know, how are we going to do hearings? How are we going to do meetings? How are we going to do all the stuff that we take? for granted about, you know, any sort of representative government. And, you know, like, obviously there's going to be concerns, especially with some of the older members or some of the more 
uh, medically vulnerable members that they might not actually be able to have a functioning or at least classically functioning constituent services, uh, outreach services. I mean, even as far as getting people to come into the office and research the bills that you want to file, you might, you know, there might be headwinds on that. I have been nothing short of impressed both House and Senate with the members uh, that we're offering access. Now that access could be different. Some would be come on into the office just like it was 19 or before. And others would be like, well, let's set up a Zoom. Um, and others had even other arrangements. But the fact is that those members were there. They were working. I can tell you for a fact, they were working late into the evenings, many, many sessions <laughs> or many, many uh, hearings. Um, I, I don't have the record for Who the- Who has late- it, Chad? It's like Chad, 6 a.m.? Chad has it. I think the I think it's 6.03 because I, I actually looked at the timestamp when he texted me that he was done. I was I was up getting ready for the day by that point, um, whereas, whereas mine's only, uh, I think, 5.40. So, you know, just, you know, just- Just in. shy. Exactly. But the fact is what that 5.40 hearing, when I left, the entire dais was full. That is something else. And I mean, this is in criminal jurisprudence. Which you know doesn't necessarily have the most, you know, uh, you know, I'd say sexy topics that come before it. Stuff that's very highly technical and stuff that can be divisive. But still, each one of those members was there, was plugged in, and was hearing testimony, public testimony, to the wee hours of the morning. And I think that only speaks for their professionalism. You know, again, this is this is not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. It's a Texas thing. And I think that that speaks very highly of our members. Absolutely. Well, on that note. Thank you all for being here today. Thanks Thanks. for doing the hard job, Crystal. Oh, yeah, the hard job. (laughs) You know, I'll be here. I'll be back behind the mixing board next week. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, y'all, for tuning in. Have a good one. Thank you.